0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you today. Thank you for coming and worshiping the Lord together, for singing loudly, for hearing his word preached and your endeavors to adopt it into your life. Um, It is wonderful to journey on this path together. And as we do, I wonder if you may have experienced a particular type of struggle Because there is a struggle among many who claim to be Christians, and the struggle is a very real threat to your soul. It's articulated something like this. If God has done all of the work in my salvation, and he will do the work in my life, and he will provide for me an eternal home, then why does it matter? How I live until I get to that new home. Those of us that might think that way are like the family members in the old house. Imagine with me a family of four living in a modest home. It's a good home and it meets their needs, but it's also far from perfect. The pipes are going, the floors are scratched up, the walls have marks on them, the kitchen island is dated. And then one day, Papa or Grandpa comes and visits, and he tells them, I am saving money to do a major renovation of your house. In 10 years, I will redo everything for you. New floors, appliances, wiring, roofing, siding, and landscaping. Everything is going to be redone. That night, they celebrated And they talked about their dream home. But after their beloved papa left, they faced a dilemma. How do they live until the new house is ready? With some sarcasm, the oldest son says, who cares how we live? It's all going to be redone. I say, we trash the place and live it up. And the daughter says, well, we can just live here, but let's spend all of our time and energy dreaming about the house to come. And the father says, well, I'm not fixing anything else in this house. If it breaks, it's going to stay broken. I'm not patching holes, I'm not sanding floors, and I'm not fixing doors. As long as the roof doesn't collapse, I'm not touching it. The family's mother listened quietly before saying, here's the thing. It will be wonderful to get a brand new home, but now, even before it comes, we have to live in this home like we're going to live in the brand new one. If we trash this house, we'll just learn how to trash houses. (laughs) We should dream and plan for the new house, but if we only think about the new home, we will miss the goodness that is still here. And if we never fix anything, we'll need to live with more things broken than are necessary. Seeing broken things only brings sadness. And she concluded, so from now on, you need to imagine like we're living in the new house now and live in this house just like we will in our new one to come. Some of us might be tempted to think of our Christian life in the way of the family members who are lazy or self-serving And the desire for what is to come without taking stock of what is right now leads to some undesirable circumstances. But there's a better way, and it's the way that Paul shares with us in Philippians chapter 2. So if you've yet to open your Bible, I would encourage you to do so to Philippians chapter 2. Today we have just a short passage starting in verse 12 through 18. And this is what Paul says to the Christians in Philippi and to us. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Verse 12 begins this section with the word therefore. <laughs> and as you've heard us say many times, when you see that word that begins a section in the Bible, therefore, you need to pause and you need to think about and figure out what the therefore It's therefore. And in this case, and in nearly every case in the New Testament, verse 12 looks backwards. And it's based on everything before it in chapter 2. And not just in chapter 2, but even all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27. Everything that's preceded now is leading up to this type of application. And the flow goes something like this. All the way back in verse... 127 live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then to chapter 2 verse 3, what does that look like? It means do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as greater than yourselves. And then in verse 5, have the mind of Christ. Well, what does that mind look like? Verse 8 of chapter 2. This is displayed in humbling himself And being obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. And then verse 9, Therefore God has exalted him and raised him up and given him the name above every other name. Now, verse 12, Therefore, because of all of these things, you obey as well and work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. So you see the flow, there's a a progression that's happening here, you might summarize it this way. Since Jesus obeyed and humbled himself, God rewarded him by exalting him with a name above every name. Therefore, you keep obeying as well and God will exalt you also. That's the motivation for the work in working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So let's talk about what that phrase means and what that phrase doesn't mean, to work out your salvation. Working out your salvation doesn't mean working for your salvation. It's common for people to think about the fact that they Desire or should have a need to work for their salvation. Think about the man who is rowing on a boat down a river just above a dreadfully steep rapids. The current begins to bear him downward. The spectators on the banks give him up for lost. He's gone, (laughs) they all exclaim. But in another moment, a rope is thrown toward the wretched man, and it strikes the water near the boat. Now, how does the case stand? Do all the spectators on the shoreline call to him to row, to row stronger, to row harder, to try to reach the shore? No. They eagerly cry, drop your oars, give up your desperate attempt, and grab the rope. And so also is the sinner's hope. It doesn't lie in struggling to save yourself, but to cease the struggle altogether. Friends, some of you have been rowing upstream for a long time, (laughs) and the current is getting stronger, and it's sweeping you farther down. It's time to stop rowing. The Bible's clear. God does not save you because of the sincerity of your effort. And he doesn't save you because of your number of good works. He saves you because Jesus' work on the cross extends to you and you access it through his grace. All you need to do is reach out and grab on to him. Ephesians 2.5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Or on to verse 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God, not by works lest any man should boast. Or Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So our work is not working for our salvation. So then what is our work? What does that mean to work out our salvation? Working out our salvation is the process in which we learn to live as saved people in the midst of the difficulties around us. It means to work it out how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in accordance with the obedience of Jesus and because of his great exaltation. Why do we have to work it out? Because it's hard. It's hard to live as a follower of Jesus. The Bible teaches us things we don't understand. It presents us with tension points that we don't like. It tells us God's ways that are sometimes and even often very opposite to how we feel. And all of these things happen in the context of a community of people who are all short-sighted sinners just like you and are really good at sinning against each other. And so we need to work it out. And we might consider the nature of this work to be in two different spheres. Our work and God's work. So let's start with our work. The first thing that is indicated about our work is that it has a communal focus to it. I don't know about you, but uh, I think so often many of us tend to think about spiritual realities in terms of simply what it means for me. We live in a very individualistic time. We think about our life through the lens of the self. We think about our work and what does it mean for me. We think about our time and what does it mean for me. We think about our resources and what does it mean for me. And we think about our spirituality and what does it mean for me. And so when we come to a command like this to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we often think about very simply, what does it mean for me? However, this command is first and foremost corporate in its nature, and then secondarily, individual in its nature. Now, no doubt both are there, but the primary thrust is felt for us, the community of us. Work out your, plural, salvation. And if this is something that we need to work out together, then it means that very clearly our responsibility as members of a local church together is not just a casual thing. Working out our salvation is of greatest importance. Something we do together. We might even say that working out our salvation is the pursuit of a long obedience. Together. In the same direction. There's a disposition of our work, in case you're tempted to think that the idea of working out your salvation with all of these other people in the context of community is really not that big of a deal. Well the disposition that we are to have points to the fact that it is. Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is a description of how people reacted when they encountered the person of God in the Old Testament. It's also a description of how people reacted when they encountered God's people and were afraid of them because God's presence was with them. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 16, In that day... The prophet writes, The Egyptians will be like women and tremble and fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. When you encounter someone that is infinitely powerful, fear and trembling is the response. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Verse 25 says that no one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay fear, the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he has promised you. God's presence with his people caused this fear to happen. And so his presence causes humility. It causes submission among the people that he engages with. And it's that type of care that you're called to engage with with this work of growth as Christians. God is present among us. It's his salvation that we're to live in. It was purchased with the highest price of the blood of his son, and our growth in it is serious. It's wonderful, and it is done within the gaze of God himself. I like that expression, a long obedience in the same direction. A humble, long obedience in the same direction together as we work out what it means to live as a saved people in the church and in the world. A long obedience with the woman who is sitting behind you right now. A long obedience with that couple in your growth group. It's a long obedience with the widower in your Sunday school class. It's a long obedience with the hundreds and hundreds of people you worship with Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, thinking together, praying together, hearing God's word together, obeying him together, a long obedience in the same direction. There is, secondarily, an individual element to working out your salvation. As we think, as we struggle, as we wrestle, reconciling our thoughts, or our feelings in the world with what God tells us in his word, we're gonna come back and talk more about that in just a minute. But before we do, let's consider Not just our work, but God's work. Because one of the most encouraging parts of this passage is found in verse 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Both to will and work for his good pleasure. Our motivation is not just the obedience of Jesus that results in his exaltation, But it is also the fact that God is actually working in you, all of you, together right now. It's like the motivation of an employee who hears that the spot above them in the corporation will be opening up. And if they work hard, that will be theirs. Or the high school basketball player who is guaranteed he will grow five inches in the next year. And as long as he's practicing and continuing To work hard. He will be a force to be reckoned with. God is working in you as a church. In case you haven't noticed, it's pretty awesome. More people are coming to faith in Christ. More people are growing deeper in their understanding of him. More missionaries are being supported. More young people are expressing a desire for the things of the Lord. God is working in us. And when he says, to will and work for his good pleasure, that's a guarantee. And it should be immensely encouraging to you because God's will always comes to pass. And if he is doing it for his good pleasure, you know that God doesn't like junky things. (laughs) He wants the very best For his children. And so he accomplishes his work in you as a church. And so we work because God is working in us. That's the idea. We work because God is working in us. There are many implications about this. Let's just think of a couple together. The first and probably the most obvious is that the command to work out your salvation, if it is for all of us as Christians, and it is, and if it is primarily communal in nature, and it is, then it's pretty hard to obey this command if you're not part of a local church. If someone says to me that they have no interest in growing with other Christians, I don't know if they're a Christian at all, Because the biblical vision for the Christian life seems to be something that happens in community with other Christians. That's implication number one. Secondly, it's related to the first. It raises the bar of significance for how you participate in a local church, how you participate in our church. If you simply function on the fringe of church life and you view your participation in church as simply coming to something to consume it for 75 minutes a week and then leave, it's difficult to get more relational components of growth and work out your salvation with other people. (laughs) That's difficult, if not impossible at that moment. The third implication is that this has clear implications for how we should look at coming to a church or leaving a church. You should come to a church with the desire to join that church as a member to see how God works among you and how God works out your salvation with all of these other people around you. When you leave a church, the implication is that you're walking away from what God is doing in that church family. Some of you might have come here from another church. I'm sure many of you have at one point or another. And that's not to say there's not good reasons for leaving a church. There are many good reasons to leave a church and to go to a different church. But leaving a church is not without significance, It should be a grievous thing when you feel like you have to leave your former church and go to a different church. It should never be based on petty disagreements or lack of preferences. And as you come to this church, my hope is for you that you join this group of people and that there's a desire to stay for a long time to have a long obedience in the same direction. Novelist and farmer Wendell Berry has a unique image of the perils of individualism. As he was walking with his friend, Wes Jackson, they observed a plot of Maximilian sunflowers, nearly 10 foot tall plant that is native to the Midwest. Wes Jackson pointed to one particular plant that was growing alone, disconnected from the community of sunflowers. Wendell observed that although this solo individualistic plant had grown very tall, it was clearly not healthy. The blossoms were thick and heavy, so heavy that the branches were starting to strain and break under the weight. Barry noted that in one sense the plant had succeeded, as a solo plant, after all, it was growing and it was unusually tall. But unfortunately, it had completely failed its intended purpose as a Maximilian sunflower because these plants only thrive and give life as they grow in community, not in isolation. And so Barry concludes, we could say that achieving success solely as an individual was the plant's failure. It had failed because it had lived outside of an important part of its own definition, which consists of individuality and its community. A part of its healthy potential lay in its community, not just itself. And so it is with Christians. Fourthly, implication is an individual one. How do you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? We've talked about what that means as a community, but what does it mean individually? Well, sometimes there are doctrines of God that the Bible teaches that we don't understand. (laughs) And sometimes there are commands of God that we don't like. And sometimes we have a difficulty reconciling what we feel and desire as we go through this life with what we know that the Bible says. And in these moments, your reflex might be to walk away from God and to live life your own way, or your reflex might be to say, if I don't understand it, it must not be that important. And therefore, to minimize what God says. But here, the call to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is so helpful because when you commit to follow the Lord in faithfulness over the course of a long time, difficult doctrines tend to become clearer as you get to know Him better. And when you commit to the truth of the Scriptures, your feelings will eventually follow your mind and you will work it out because God is working in you. We work because God is working in us. And so we've seen our work. We've seen God's work. We've seen the motivation. But the question remains... How, (laughs) how do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? And Paul doesn't give us a comprehensive answer, but he gives us something that we don't do and something that we do. He says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. We don't grumble or dispute. We do hold fast to the word of life. Let's just start with the don't. We don't grumble, complain, or dispute. Grumbling was the description of God's people in the Old Testament. You might remember God had miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He had promised them a new land in which they were to go. He brought them through the wilderness on the way to the land. He provided food from heaven, manna that rained down day in and day out. And for all of God's kindness to them, they grumbled. muffled complaints while not truly addressing issues. Disputes, likewise, are petty quarrels. And Paul says that grumbling is associated with a crooked and twisted generation. Avoiding it will keep you blameless and innocent and keep your witness as you will be a light in the world Grumbling and complaining are prohibitive to growth. They poison the well of community. They're the opposite of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. I remember the story of the little boy who never said a word for six years. His parents prayed. He went to therapy. The boy never spoke. And then one day, his parents served him hot cocoa. And from out of left field, the kid says, This cocoa's no good. His parents began to celebrate. They said to him, You're spoke. Why did you wait so long to talk? And he said, Up until now, everything's been okay. Some Christians are like that. When things are fine, they're silent. And when things are distasteful, their words become loud. Paul says that's the opposite that our disposition should be as as with regard to this work. We don't grumble or dispute. We do, conversely, hold fast to the word of life. And the grammar indicates that this is an ongoing action that you continue to hold fast that describes how you shine as lights in the world, verses 15 and 16. Why should you read your Bible? Why should you listen to preaching? Why should you go to a growth group? Because they all help you hold fast to the word of life. And the word gives you that life. And the word makes you shine out as different as lights in the world, which is often referred to as a dark place. You know, I will never understand for the life of me why some churches shy away from a robust teaching of the Word of God. They do so in an attempt to draw in the culture around them, they don't draw people to anything that's much different than the culture around him, however. And those churches will very often end up looking just like the culture. But here's the thing. When you hold fast to the word of life, you will look different than the culture around you. We, when we hold fast to it together, because we learn it and adopt it and cling to it and want to obey it, we will develop different likes and dislikes than the world around us. We will have different priorities than the people around us. We will have a different way of living than the people around us. We will have a different way of speaking than the people around us. And for some people, it will be weird, but it will be light in the midst of darkness. We work because God is working in us. And the result, my friends, is joy. The theme of Philippians again and again and again is that you would have joy in this life. And the passage concludes, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I have joy. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. I have joy, Paul says, they should have joy in the midst of this and you, Christians, should have joy. Everybody wants joy, deep abiding happiness that has purpose and resolve, a strong constitution behind it. Paul says that he's proud of them and that his joy remains even when his life is difficult. He's suffering, he's being poured out as a drink offering, a sacrifice to God for their sake. He has joy. They should have joy as they work out their salvation with fear and trembling, even though it's hard, even though it's people who, with people who aren't like them, because God is working among them, and you should have joy. You have the gospel, it's available to you. You can hold fast to the word of life, God is working in you. You have a church around you. You can have lasting joy in the Lord. Growth takes time. (laughs) I wonder if you would consider yourself a patient or an impatient person. Working out your salvation... Is a long obedience in the same direction. On a visit to two California vineyards, Margaret Feinberg discovered that vintners must adopt the long term approach for their work. She said the first year the vintner plants shoots of vines rather than seeds because these yield the strongest vines. At the end of the first growing season, he cuts them back. A second year passes, he cuts them back again. Only after the third year does he see the first viable clusters of grapes. Serious vintners leave those clusters on the vines. For most vintners, it's not until year four that they bring in their first harvest. For those growing grapes for wine making, they'll bottle their harvest, they won't taste the fruit of their labors until year seven or eight. Most vineyards in Napa Valley won't reach a break-even point for their investment until year 15, 18, or beyond. Applying these insights to the spiritual life, you say, sometimes I look at my own life and I wonder, why am I not more fruitful? And why does the pruning have to hurt so much and why does cultivating a healthy crop taste, take so long? And yet those questions circle around the here and the now. And God's perspective is a lot different. Like a good vineyard owner, he knows how to bring about fruitfulness better than you do or better than I ever will. He's patient with me. He's more patient than I am with myself. He's patient with our church. He's more patient than you are with each other. He fulfills what he calls us to do and we must recognize that like the vintners, our fruitfulness is not gonna come overnight. The first harvest of our labors may not come for years or years or years. And the labors that have gone long before us, are being harvested even now. And the labors that you engage in now, some will be harvested today, and others will not be harvested for years. Because the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. We work because God is working in us. So friends, keep working. Keep working. Let's pray. Father, motivate us by the obedience and glorification of your son. Motivate us by the wonderful promise that you work to your will and to your good pleasure. Give us patience and perseverance, we pray. Give us a desire for greater community even with these hundreds upon hundreds. Help us to be faithful to you as we work these things out. You are a great God and your salvation is the defining gift of our life. And we thank you and we praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen.